Welcome to Imperfect Action. I'm Brock Edwards, and today we've got our guest is uh, Rebecca Bellone. And uh, actually, we, you know, we Rebecca and I were just talking before the show that we've had such a wide variety of guests on. I was just kind of going back through the the past few episodes. You know, we had Tuomas Ranakari, who is a, a violinist and a composer and an ethnomusicologist, and I still can't pronounce that. And Katrina Kibben, who's a copywriter to help uh, HR departments and recruiting departments recruit people better. And we had uh, Maya Nudicic, who is uh, helping an IT firm in Serbia. Uh, create better business results through creating a happy work environment. And uh, Tim Jones, creating a life true to yourself. And Paul Ozenkup was talking about laughter and leadership. And Mark Babbitt, leadership, culture, bias for action. I mean, we've had this great variety of guests. And so, and covering a wide range of fields. And Rebecca is no exception to this. So Rebecca, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Um, thanks, Brock. Thanks for the um, opportunity to get to to talk um, about what I do and how I got, got to this place. But um, yeah, my name is Rebecca Ballone, and I am the director of the Veterinary Genetics Laboratory at UC Davis. Um, my passion is equine genetics, and um, I've been um, in higher education for about 16 years now. So um, prior to joining the faculty here at UC Davis, I was on faculty at the University of Tampa in Tampa, Florida for 12 years. And I taught an array of biology classes. So, um, so yeah, that's a little All bit right. about me. So uh, first equine geneticist I've had on the show. And um, yeah, that's, that's, so that's kind of a different field. And, you know, I, I always think that, you know, all the, everything that we want to be uh, when we're a kid and we talk about what we want to be when we grow up, like all the, all the real jobs out there are things that no kid has ever heard of or, or thinks about. And how do you get into that field or how That's did you get question. into that field? <laughs> it, it's, it's um, kind of a windy, twisty road, actually. Um, as a kid growing up, my dad was an oncologist and so he, you know, always wanted me to go to medical school. And um, I had decided as a kid that I didn't want to be in school for that long. But as it turns out, I actually went to school for a really long time. Um, So, you know, in high school, I thought maybe I'd go into business. And then I was an undergraduate student at the University of Florida. And I thought maybe I would become a physical therapist. And, um, and then I just, I didn't do well on the physical therapy entrance exam. And, you know, I was a almost a straight A student. So to not do well on an exam to me was very hard, but it also let me know that, okay, I'm not meant to do this with my life. And um, so I ended up taking this course called Genetic Improvement of Domesticated Farm Animals. No, and it I, was I, through that. Rebecca, I've got to stop you right there. Like, did you just come across that in the catalog? Where, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's actually a really funny story. So, um, I really liked animals. And at the time I had thought, okay, well, I don't want to be a physical therapist, but maybe I want to be a farmer. And you can imagine what my dad, who was an oncologist said, like, well, good thing you're going to the University of Florida because I don't know the first thing about farming. Um, So I started taking some agricultural classes there. And then um, the different classes sort of led me to another and you talk to other students and a bunch of students had said, oh, this course, you know, genetic improvement of um, domesticated animals is a really great course. You should take it. So I did. And I just was crazy fascinated about genetics. 
Um, and it was during that course that really, you know, ignited a passion for pigmentation biology and for horse genetics. And um, it was really in that class that that I decided, yes, this is what I want to do with my life. So uh, you highlight, you know, some something great in there, and I, I see this in college students a lot. Those that I talk to, my you know, my daughter's about to enter college, and I, I think we think of like career paths as being like this straight line. You know, you, you go to school, you get your degree in this, and that's what you do for the rest of your life, and that's how you become successful. And yet, I have met like no other adult who's ever actually had that path, <laughs> and, and we keep selling that myth. And I just, I just don't encounter it. What, what I encounter is much more like what you're talking about, where you try one thing and that didn't quite work out. Then you try another. And then there's this thing that sounds totally random, but just hooks you. And then you go that way and find out more about it and you come back. And, you know, when we talk, I mean, the name of the the show is Imperfect Action. It's, you know, just the idea that um, there isn't like this perfect path, (laughs) that it is windy and twisty. And sometimes we double back. So, you know, I I appreciate your path that, that it's just it's kind of followed that pattern and yet you've ended up in something that you're very passionate about and very, very interested in. And when we talk about imperfect action, how have you seen that showing up in your academic life? I think about, um, so when I, I guess I think about a, a couple of things. The first thing is, you know, I thought when I was an undergrad, my professor started talking about um, the spotting pattern in horses called Appaloosa spotting. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go to graduate school and figure that out. And I think the imperfect action of that was somewhat of the naivety on my part that I thought, oh, in four years, I can solve all of this. And right. Right. No, one, no one else has solved it, but you'll go to grad school and it'll be good. Right. And I'll just figure it out. And, you know, and that was many years ago. And the technology and the things that we knew about genetics is nowhere near where they are today. Um, and so, you know, I, I jokingly say now, and this would be a great example of an imperfect action, I earned my PhD on figuring out what genes didn't cause Appaloosa spotting. Um, and, and so that's kind of how it went. And then from there, I did a postdoc and actually um, was interested in doing human cancer research. Um, my father passed away when I was in graduate school. And so I kind of thought, well, let me go do a postdoc in this to sort of honor him. Um, and and I really didn't enjoy that. It wasn't something I was passionate about. And so I lasted about nine months at that. And then an opportunity arose for me to join the faculty at University of Tampa Um, And so, you know, that's kind of where the career path went. And what was unique about that opportunity was I was able to do research on whatever fascinated me, but then I also taught for classes a term and I love teaching. So it ended up being a great job and not something that I thought that I would do back when I was an undergrad. Um, But I was inspired by many of my undergraduate professors. And so um, I also when I started that job, decided that's the kind of professor I wanted to be. I wanted to inspire um, the next generation of scientists. And so I ended up staying there for 12 years. And then my husband actually got the job at UC Davis and I was the trailing spouse. And so it's kind of weird how, you know, I ended up here and um, uh, was offered a position here. And then a couple years later um, became the director of the veterinary genetics lab. So it, it is kind of, that path was certainly not a perfect path, but it was a fun one. 
Well, excellent. So uh, other than uh, discovering all the genes that don't lead to, <laughs> to the patterning, uh, what, is your, what has your research discovered? What, what have you come across over the years? So eventually we were able to um, identify the cause for um, Appaloosa spotting. But through the process, we also learned that horses that have two copies of the variant of the gene that causes that spotting pattern, they also have a condition called congenital stationary night blindness. So what that means is that horses with two copies of that gene, they can't see at night. And um, an interesting sort of parallel with that is the work that we did in horse and the gene that we unraveled actually led um, researchers studying human night blindness to start to look at that gene. And it turns out that in humans, there are um, more variants in that gene that cause night blindness than there are in any other genes so far known to cause night blindness in humans. But the humans with mutations in that gene don't have the spotting pattern like the horses do. Um, and so I think that's another sort of exciting part about science. You never know what sort of answer you're going to get to. And then that sort of leads you down another path. And then that leads to, you know, more questions. Yeah, I mean, not not even just uh, another path, but that, I mean, crossing over into, um, you know, another field, <laughs> and you know, going from horses to to people. Now, not not knowing anything about the Appaloosa patterning, what was so unique or so distinct or difficult about figuring out the cause of that? I think one of the um, issues is that it's a, a complicated um, phenotype or appearance in that um, horses range in what, what they look like and they still have the same patterning. So a horse can be almost completely white and it, it has the pattern or a horse can have just a little bit of white on its rump. Um, so it was the extensive variation um, that made it a little bit trickier. But the other thing that made it difficult was that when I started my PhD, um, we we actually knew very little about horses and their genetic makeup. Um, and so if it was a project that I started today, maybe in four years I could have solved it or in a couple of years I could have solved it because our knowledge of horse genetics is just so much greater and the tools that we we have available at which to ask questions about genetics are much greater than they were. So studying horses and studying horse genetics, um, I mean, you, you've already mentioned one thing that, that was kind of a, an accident is the right word, but, you know, it crossed the fields, it crossed over into, we found a use for, for humans as well. Um, what, what is the, I don't know, the, the, the drive, the push, how does, how does helping understand horse genetics help us? I don't know if that makes sense or not. Oh, it, it does. Um, so uh, another example also related to Appaloosas. I do, I promise I study other, other things besides Appaloosas, but Appaloosa horses also get another ocular condition called equine recurrent uveitis. Um, and essentially what that is, is inflammation in the middle layer of the eye. And with repeated bouts of inflammation, they can go blind from it. Well, um, people... Um, have a, a spotting pattern called vitiligo, and there have been links with that to human um, uveitis. So if we could understand what's causing that in the horse, we may also, again, be able to understand what's 
causing that in humans. And it could lead to um, better effective treatments as well. Hmm. So, you know, we were talking about passion and I find passion for, for work and, and purpose and, and all that really interesting. Uh, you know, it's it, different for everyone. And, and I think everyone's looking for, you know, what it is they're passionate about. Um, how did you know that you found it for you? I mean, other than it was really interesting for you, was, was there anything about it where you just said, yes, this is what I must pursue? Um, or, or maybe I, I, I could ask, what, what, what is it that really hooked you about what you're doing? That's a really tough question. I didn't think it would be that tough, but it is. Um, I think, you know, part of it was I was captivated by the beauty of what they look like. Mm. Um, and then just driven by that burning, yearning desire to know, you know, how, how does this phenomenon occur? Um, and then, you know, I just find research so interesting that it just, you know, any, any opportunity there, there is to ask an interesting question and then design experiments, um, to test the hypothesis related to that question. I think that's the part that really fascinates me, um, you know, over the years, I've studied several different pigmentation traits, not just Appaloosa spotting, but that connection with Appaloosa spotting and night blindness um, basically opened up doors for me to study other ocular disorders. So it's not just the pigmentation that I'm interested. I think it's the the passion stems from just the the desire to know. You know, it, it's funny you, you mentioned that it was a harder question than you would have thought it would have been. Uh, I think there's something to that. Uh, and I, and I don't know what it is. I'm kind of just thinking out loud as we're talking here, but I, I get the sense and, and I've had this feeling myself that, you know, the, the thing that we're passionate about, I think we often think of it as like the singular thing out there for us. And, you know, the clouds will part and the rays of sunshine will come down from the heavens when we find <laughs> it. And, and the, you know, again, that's not really the reality. It, it I don't know, it seems to sneak up on us or we stumble into it, we fall into it, we, we end up on, on a different path. And it, it may not even be obvious even to us. And, you know, so I find it interesting, you've been doing this for, for years, and it's still you got to stop and think, you know, what, what, what is it that really grabs me about it? Um, yeah, why do I really like this? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, well, you know, so you, you mentioned that, that you love teaching as well. And you know, I think about my, my own daughter, you know, like say she's about to go into college here soon. What advice have you given or do you give when students are trying to figure out what they should be pursuing? Because you went through like, well, I think at least three majors as we were talking. Um, how, how do you help them sort that out is, you know, they're, they're 18, barely gotten anywhere in life. And yet we're telling them, no, you need to decide what you're going to do for the rest of your life right now. Just put it down on the form and, and go. Um, how do you help with that? That's a really great question. Um, the advice that I share actually came from one of my own undergraduate men mentors, um, Dr. John Holt, who, you know, when I was sort of struggling and trying to figure out what is, what is it that I'm supposed to do with my life? Um, and I vividly remember sitting in his office and, and almost crying like, okay, I didn't do well on this physical therapy exam. And, you know, I don't know where I'm going to go or what I'm going to do. And he sort of said, just listen for the music. 
And if you're doing something that makes you feel like you want to dance, you know you're doing the right thing. And when I was a postdoc, I did not want to get up and go to work every day. I, I just didn't enjoy it. And I, every morning I'd get up and I'd say, you're not hearing the music. That's what I'd say to myself. You don't hear the music. You've got to go find music. Um, and so oftentimes I've relayed that same message to students in my office when they were crying, saying they didn't know what they wanted to do with their life. They can't, you know, pass organic chemistry and they're not going to make it to medical school. And, you know, I tell them just try lots of different things. And if it's something that makes you want to dance, you know, you're headed in the right direction. I love that. Um, listening for the music and it is such a tough decision. And, you know, try, trying to sort out what I, I haven't even explored life yet. And now I, I need to figure out what it is exactly I'm going to do. And, and, you know, not only is it a tough decision at 18, it's a tough decision, you know, in your 40s, and your 50s. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of adults are still kind of trying to figure out, you know, what, what they want to be when they grow up. And uh, just the, the idea of listening for the music, I, I think, I don't know, after a while, it feels like a, a lot of us stop listening for the music and just kind of hunker down wh where we're at. And um, that there's a lot of beauty there to, to look for the things that make you want to dance. Um, I realize that's not, my, not a question, but. <laughs> my dad used to always tell me too, um, you can't be afraid of failure because the only thing that's permanent is death. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, times at, at life when you're, you're struggling or, you know, you're doing some report that maybe you don't love at your job or something, you know, you just, you say, okay, well, I'm going to go try this because maybe I will hear the music over here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's such good advice. Um, and, and, and I say, I think often we get channeled into narrow focus or we think we have to have a narrow focus or, you know, re kind of relentlessly pursue whatever that first thing is that, that comes to us. And, and as one that like you went through several majors before ending up where I ended up <laughs> and, and a couple of different career paths. Um, I, I appreciate that a lot. It, like I say, it's not, not straight line. I, I don't know that I've met anyone who's really successful in what they do. That's it's been a straight line. Um, so, well, when you talk about, so college professor, and to, I mean, to me, that's kind of a, a dream job. I, I don't know if it's a dream job for everyone, but, you know, there, there's, um, you know, for those of us that like to learn and like to read and like to study and figure stuff out um, and get to share that knowledge, that sounds pretty cool. And, uh, you know, college was fun. And, and, you know, the, the, the idea of kind of getting to be the professional student sounds, sounds fun. Um, and, you know, you get to discover stuff and, and publish papers and, and all of that. Um, what, you know, that, that's kind of the, what's seen on the outside anyway. And, and, you know, the, of course, the funny thing is that all of our perceptions of college is from the perception of, of a student and that perspective. And, and yet as a professor, as a faculty member, there's a much bigger and richer life around being a professor than simply the, those few minutes in the classroom there. So what, what are some of the downsides that you've found or not that way? What, what, what is it that um, you, you kind of wish people knew about being an academic that, that maybe they don't always think about kind of the downsides of the dream job, maybe. Um, that's hard. 
I I think a a lot of my close friends who aren't academics will just assume because I'm a college professor that means I get the summers off. Mm. Um, and you know maybe we're not teaching this summer, but we're actually the summers are some of the busiest times of the year because we're writing grants and we're trying to get research done and you know there's really not a an off season per se. Um, and so I think, you know, that's the hard part. Um, I, I think something else is hard and it may not just be the job. It may just be, you know, the personality. Um, there's never really an off switch, you know, so you always take your work home with you. Um, and as a mom, that's the hardest part for me. Um, cause I wish that sometimes I could just shut it off and say, okay, from six to nine, I'm going to be with my son. And, but, you know, I'm still thinking about, oh, I, I need to get, you know, um, you need to get that paper out, or I need to respond to that student's message, or I need to read that student's paper, um, to help them get that done. So I, I think, um, I think the hard part or maybe the biggest misconception is that, you know, we're just, we just teach or we just sit in our lab doing research and there's actually a lot of different, different hats that we wear. Yeah. So, so what is it for, I mean, from, from your perspective, from your point of view, what does it take to be successful as a research academic? Um, well, a lot of the things that we've already talked about, passion, um, not being afraid to take risks, you know, so for example, you know, our ability to get research done depends upon the funding. So we can't, we can't be afraid to, you know, maybe apply for a grant that we haven't applied for before. Um, we can't be afraid to, to try a, to, a new technique that we may not have the expertise in yet. Um, it takes willingness to always learn new things. Science is changing, technology is advancing. We always have to learn new skills. Um, it takes commitment to other people. Um, you know, you're, being successful as an academic oftentimes means that you work with a lot of other people um, to make for the best science, to bring in lots of different minds. You know, that I, I find that really interesting. Just, you know, everything you listed there, um, I would apply all that to, to like entrepreneurs or business, you know, business owners and, you know, across fields, just this idea of, Hey, it should be something you're passionate about. You're really interested in, um, that, that not being afraid to take risks, you know, that that's so important, especially, you know, try new techniques and, and being willing to learn new things. Um, I, I think a lot of us kind of get stuck in thinking, well, no, I'm, I'm supposed to be the expert, so I, I can't go learn new things, or I can't admit that I don't know this, so I can't explore it. Um, and of course, that just gets in our, in our way. And that bringing other people in, it's easy, you know, to kind of idealize kind of the Lone Ranger sort of approach. And yet, uh, I think we miss out on so much when we, when we do that. Um, yeah, go, I think that's... One of the parts about being an academic that I've really enjoyed, which is getting to meet people from all over the world and getting to work with people that I wouldn't have had the opportunity, um, you know, meeting horse owners all over the world and, and helping them um, make decisions on which horses they should breed for their particular be breeding programs. Um, that's, you know, 
for me, the other really exciting piece has been the people that I've been able to interact with, whether it be other um, academics, breeders, the students. The students have really, really influenced my life. Mm. How so? Um, I think, you know, early on when I became a professor at the University of Tampa, um, I had a few students that worked in my lab and, you know, you get really close, close with them. They become your family. They become your extended family. And, and then you, you get to see them realize their dreams and their goals. And, um, you've gotten to play a part of that part in that. And it just, it feels really good. Mm. And, um, and then there was a period of time where, um, my husband and I were trying to have a child and I, ha- I had several miscarriages and, you know, the students became my children almost. In fact, I, I joke with some of them. I call them my um, children of biology and not my biological children. And, and so, you know, my, my passion for wanting to educate them actually then turned around and helped me get through a really, a really rough, rough patch in life. Okay. Yeah. You know, um, it's, it's just interesting. It, it's so hard to go it alone. And, and yet I think so often we, we feel like we have to go it alone or that we are alone. You know, we're the only person experiencing whatever it is we're experiencing at that time. And, and of course it's never true. And, uh, I agree. One of the cool things about the world is just that, that connection with people just around the world. I, at least I've enjoyed that in my own career. And in fact, and, and you and I connected, um, through, through someone from New Zealand, even though we both live in the States and, um, you know, I, I find that fascinating. Those, those connections are, are so valuable. So, um, well, what haven't I asked you about that I really need to ask you about and need to understand about what you do and how we can help other people get out of their own way, how that would apply maybe to their lives? Oh, boy. Um, what haven't you asked me to help people get out of their own way? I think I, I, I'm in my, am I allowed to say old, how old I am? <laughs> sure. Yeah. We, we okay. don't have any rules against that here. Okay, good. I'm in my mid forties and I would say it's only been in the last several years that I've learned sometimes to get out of your own way is you really just need to take a break, hmm. you know, and you know, I'll be working on a paper and I won't be happy because it's not just right. You know, that, that, that strive for perfectionism. And then I say, okay, well, it's, it's time to, you know, go do something fun with my son, or it's time to go to the beach for the weekend. And you come back with just a a new, fresh perspective. And that, that can really help get you through those, those moments of when you're in your own way. (laughs) Yeah. I, you know, and, and I'm always a little fascinated by, by that, you know, just sometimes you you need to just kind of, hunker down and plow through it. And, you know, uh, old mentor of mine used to say, you know, kind of go bulldog on it. And, <laughs> and yet the, there are these other times where, no, what you really need is just to step back and let your mind think about something else for a minute. And then the ideas just flow. Yeah. And, and, and I've never, I, I have yet to figure out, you know, like, how do I know when the right moment for which one, <laughs> which approach is, but, um, I think for me, it's sort of been like, okay, I'm not making any progress. I'm just spinning in a circle. Time for mm. a break. Yeah. Like that, if the that, if the merry-go-round seems like it's getting faster instead of slowing down, time for a break. I think that's really good advice. Um, yeah. 
you know, and that is valuable because I, I do think that sometimes when we just kind of dig in and, and persist, uh, we, we don't come up with something as good. We, we just get it done versus something that's uh, connected deeper to, um, I don't know, inspiration comes to mind, <laughs> you know, um, a, a better, more elegant solution. So, so, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and sometimes just getting it done is, is maybe also the right choice. <laughs> See, it's hard to figure that out. And, uh, <laughs> it is. That's why it's imp- imperfect, right? That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, we've been talking about all that you do for the world and helping the students and doing the research and discovering kind of cool new things. Um, how can people help you? How can the, the listeners help you? What would your ask of them be? Well, this is going to be, might sound a little bit interesting or different, but um the laboratory where in which I direct one of our um, uh, missions is in really outreach and education now. And so several months ago, we created a Facebook page mm-hmm. and our goal with the Facebook page is really to help educate people on genetic testing um, and how to best utilize genetic testing. And so uh, what would help me is if people checked out um, the Veterinary Genetics Laboratory Facebook page and um, provided feedback and comments and and uh, and see if they, they learned something from it. All right. Fantastic. And, and I will, can include that in the show notes, but is there an easy way to find it if people just happen to be listening? If they just go on, on onto Facebook and they type Veterinary Genetics Laboratory, they will find it. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you, Brock, for the opportunity. This was really fun. 